Welcome to Seek Justice, a podcast that takes a deep dive into the nuances of criminal justice. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Eric. How are you? So you told me that today you'd like to do a brand new thing that has never been done in the history of this entire podcast. You know, here we are on episode five. And we would like to talk about something that was discussed on another podcast. And maybe you can tell me uh, later why. But um, it's on the Econ Talk podcast, which is at econtalk.org. And we're going to be discussing what Jennifer Doliak said on uh, on their January 21, 2019 episode called Doliak, Jennifer Doliak on Crime. And you told me that you had listened to this or read the transcript and had some thoughts upon it. And so anyway, um, they have very graciously given us the permission to use clips of their podcast to so that I'm so that there's no way that I'm, you know, misquoting uh, Dr. Doliak. So anyway, uh, uh, let's start with you explaining why you wanted to take this on in the first place. Well, Professor Doliak is um, listened to because she's quite bright and uh, quite uh, schooled on all of this stuff. And so not only have I heard her podcast, but uh, places where I'm working for Louisiana, for example, I've heard it. And um, at least one stakeholder who I'm involved with who runs a foundation was interested not only in what she was saying about how these efforts often fail, and it raised concerns for him as to whether or not what we're doing here is designed that same way so that it could fail. Um, and I found uh, in her writing and in her uh, talking uh that we were in fact uh, addressing these issues and so i wanted to not only hear what she had to say but also be able to respond to it in some uh you know fashion that's um that that's that's interesting that as a as a policy creator you obviously are up against people hearing uh people talk about how sometimes policies fail and you need to be able to defend yourself against that sort of skepticism so uh this should this should be interesting so should we jump right into uh, the particular part of, of their yeah. and And yeah. uh, there will be links to this particular episode and to econ.org uh, on our, in our show notes. So if you're interested in learning more, please go there, as well as to uh, Jennifer Doliak's website. I think the challenge is that we know that, that well-meaning policies have on it and programs have backfire all the time, right? Like un- there are unintended consequences all the time. So there's actually, so a great example of this in the reentry space is um, a real emphasis recently on holistic or wraparound services. So the idea is that people coming out of prison um, have just a tremendous number of needs. They have generally had their higher rates of substance abuse, um, mental illness, low education, no yep. work history, you know, on and on and on, no, nowhere to live. Um, and so what we should yeah, you need know, a full core press. So we give people, um, you know, just in, intensive case management. They have a, you know, someone that they can go to 24 hours a day and who will help connect with them with all the services they need. Uh, and the best, so then the, these program, these types of programs are typically so highly praised in communities across the country. This, they're fairly, um, this is probably the most common type of intervention. Um, and, uh, and then it turns out when you actually do a randomized control trial of them, they don't have any benefits. And in fact, so thinking of like your example of just 
give funding to local communities to kind of do whatever needs to be done there. There, the, the funding was coming from the government, which you might not like, but they, basically the idea was um, in recent years, the government has poured a ton of money just into the, just like find nonprofits that do especially, that really focused on especially these, these more holistic type of treatments. It wasn't just job training or something like that. Um, but just like gave them money and said, just keep doing what you're doing. And, uh, uh, but again, it was implemented as an RCT so that we could see what, um, you know, what the impacts were in these local communities. Um, and, uh, on average, people who were in the treatment group who got access to the services and these programs that got all the money uh, were more likely to wind up with another conviction down the road, not less. So the the first point that she raises here is really important because you have, in fact, folks at the advocacy level, at the grassroots level, providing services who've been involved in doing this work for many, many years. Reentry is not a new thing um, by any stretch while it's enjoyed a lot of notoriety and uh, much more academic research and explosion of research over the past decade, efforts to address returning prisoners' needs have been, you know, really existent. A lot of people have fought really hard for many years to be able to achieve some funding. So what they generally do is that they figure out what these people need by way of services, housing, employment, <clears throat> education, behavioral health for substance abuse, drug addiction, transportation, et cetera, and they seek to meet those needs. Oftentimes, as she points out, a holistic approach, which is uh, called intensive case management, meaning you take a look at each individual case and you intensively uh, work to address whatever uh, gaps it, that, that the person might be facing. Right. That oftentimes entails brokering services rather than providing them. So you do an assessment, you interview, you discover what the person needs, and you say, okay, well, if you need housing, you can go here, here, or here. Here's three places to refer to if you need pre-employment services or training services, a couple programs you can go to, et cetera. And a lot of times case management is making those connections for the person, but not providing the services directly. And so what you end up doing is that you're drawing down uh, fairly scarce service money to do this uh, case work, but at the end of the day, you're not actually spending any of that money for the services that the person needs. Another uh, good example, and even more stark uh, on this point, is that uh, when we're doing criminogenic risk and need assessment of individuals who are returning from prison, we can tell you what degree of criminal thinking they possess, antisocial behavior, desire to, to hang with antisocial peers, et cetera. Those are the things that you really have to respond to, and many times case management uh, doesn't do that at all. So how can you tell what degree of antisocial behavior and are there are there well-established metrics for those or? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. In the in the risk in the risk need assessment instruments that are developed uh, or uh, on the shelf for sale now, they do uh, a series of questions relative to the way that you think and the way that you make decisions. Uh, one instrument asks about 130 different questions to be able to get at some of this stuff. Then they will produce for you a score on how you compare to other people who answer those questions the same way or different ways. And so that is actuarial need assessment for criminogenic characteristics. Right. It's all about bringing everything, everything down to numbers, which yeah, is, nece is a necessary on. evil of sociology. Yeah. I mean. Well, and, and in fact, the, it, it hits on the broader point. If you're doing case management work and you're referring out for the services that you need, they include service areas, housing, employment, behavioral health. Uh, but they somewhere we've got to address this criminal thinking and this antisocial behavior. You usually do that through 
the casework itself uh, through the uh, skill training on how to listen for and respond to the clues to that type of uh, psychological characteristic and then how to coach the person through those things and how to help improve the decision making so that uh, the decisions in the past, the bad decisions in the past aren't repeated. And so if that stuff isn't uh, very discreetly addressed in the casework itself, then that's also missing a major point. And the, the, the third and final point, which you really just uh, touched on, is that you can't work with everybody like they're the same. If a human service agency that's doing this wraparound casework is intending to help people and help everybody, that's one thing. But if they intend to also reduce the recidivism rate, reduce the number of people who fail and return to prison, then you've got to do a much more disciplined job of determining who your clientele are, because not everybody who gets out goes back. And of those that go back, not all of them go back at the same rate. And so the science of uh, risk and need assessment can help delineate for us those clients that are most likely to fail, and therefore the ones where we should put our scarce resources. Not that we can't help a lot of people in a lot of different ways, but we've got to save our most expensive and scarce resources for the people who need it the most. They happen to be the people who don't knock on our doors. They're the people who are more non-compliant, more antisocial, et cetera. Right. And so you've got to go looking for them and you've got to design very specific ways to, to, to find them, enroll them and motivate them. If you don't do those three things, address the service barrier areas, address the criminogenic characteristics, and also um, work very, very uh, diligently to get at the right people, then yeah. you're not going to affect the recidivism rate. And it doesn't matter how beloved a program is, which she also raised in the clip. Yes, yes. Uh, and that's a big issue. That's a big issue because that love is also about power and authority. And if you've been in this space for a while, even though you may not have been particularly successful over the past 10 years reducing the recidivism rate, you're still helping an awful lot of people. And that's very good. So this stuff is kind of tangled up, right? Yeah, yeah. She very, she very clearly said that some people have their pet programs that they that they go and and don't even want to hear the results about because that could could potentially, you know, they don't they don't even want to know the science behind whether or not the program is working or not, which is a real problem. And those of us that are concerned with not only you know data data but also actually having positive yeah. results uh, that that bothers us. So, well, there's another. Uh, sorry, go ahead. There's another part in her clip um, where she talks about scientism, where something sounds like it's scientific. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I, love that. I love that word. Isn't. Yeah. And another way to, to another way to describe that is that people are good at talking the talk when it comes to evidence-based practices, meaning the science of it and what you have to do to be able to uh, target the right people, provide the right services, match them to the right services at the right time, give them the right dosage. All of these evidence-based practices. One thing to say it. And it's another thing to do it. And a lot of times when you uh, are, are looking and reviewing agency information, doing program assessments, much of which I've, I've done over the years, you see the right words there. But when you dig into it, they're not uh, highly skilled trained. They're not doing that work. And so the question becomes, and, and uh, uh, the interviewer at, a, at a kind of lib, uh, Russ Roberts pointed this out by saying, um, but you want to you uh, uh, you know, support the ones that work. And you, you, you don't want to support the ones that don't work. You want to expand some and not expand the others. Well, when their programs are all kind of equally beloved in the community and they have each have a long, maybe 10, 15 year history of doing the work and they're supported by 
boards of directors and advisory councils, and they have the support of the city commission in the the counties or the parishes or whatever. Yeah, that's easier said than done. It's hard to to say to those folks, well, you know, you're not doing what you say, and in order to do a better job, you've got to change the way that you're going after your clients. Well, they don't want to hear that. Right. Or we're going to cut your funds. And, well, the government's given the funding, and often the government is the agency that's least able to be able to discern programs that are highly accountable and evidence-based from those that aren't, you know, so, in, so who, in, in many cases. Who is more, who is more able to assess? Well, the academics and the universities and the colleges across the country right, are right. The, very, the, very well-versed stuff, yeah. Okay, and so, you've got to have an independence. That's yeah, so it's, 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 people like, it's people like the academic community that uh, that that Doliak was referring to about. Uh, she mentioned one time that, that she's very pleased now that so many of the academic papers are like 30 pages of paper and 100 pages of citations where they've gone and shown exactly all the different uh, ways that, that they've looked at all the different ways that this can be done. So, yeah, yeah, the academics are, yeah, I imagine there's many areas of public policy where academia has a lot of information, but converting it into actual legislation is uh, complicated. Or, or turning it into more practical application. Right. I mean, I'm not a fan of rushing to legislation to, to get stuff done because so much can be done through executive authority that already exists through parole boards and executive agencies. Yeah, I'm sorry. But, I, I said know, legislation when I meant, when I meant budgeting. Well, and, and, and that's very, very critical. One, one of the things that um, needs to be a focal point, though, is that this uh, practical application of academic findings is a real uh, a difficult uh, area that needs a whole lot of attention. There's been, in fact, not surprisingly, academic research on the lack of practical application of academic research. Nice. And there's been some work done uh, by a researcher named Inkster um, uh, who wrote uh, papers about a better connection uh, with uh, academic at the practical level because it's one thing to be able to say, well, this program isn't targeting people properly and they're not uh, matching clients properly with the highest risk, et cetera. It's another thing to say, so this is what we need to do about it over time. And here's the assistance that you need to be able to to, to, to be more skilled at the training that you're providing to get the skills to the people that need them, right. career development, uh, oversight guidance, data collection, monitoring, et cetera. It's a big, big piece of this, which when states are doing the funding, you know, Louisiana, for example, just received some additional state funding through a Pew Charitable Trust effort called Justice Reinvestment, and they've got access to several million dollars. Well, they're not spending uh, much of that money at all on evaluation of performance or on data systems and monitoring, they're expecting the grantees to kind of each do that on their own, as far as we can tell. Hmm. And this is an area that, that will end up uh, being a real suffering point later when they're not able to show in some standardized way proof that the concepts really work, uh, particularly since they're only working with several hundred people out of several thousand. So you've got to be very thoughtful and know uh, kind of know what the end game is and what you want to be able to show. Uh, after two years, three years, four years, or whatever, and you've got to set out going about doing that and simply uh, looking at programs that might be beloved and very well supported uh, without having a layer of process and impact evaluation over the top of them is misguided. And that's exactly what uh, uh, Jennifer Doliak, I think, is talking about. I've written her to see what she has to say about some of these things, but uh, it's uh, it's very important points that she's making and, and some that are very, very broadly not understood. So in general, you're, you agree with most of what she said. Uh, you just wanted to talk a little bit more about the details of why she's correct and to, well, and she, to she amplify. Really, yes. 
do you have any do you have any objections to anything that she said or did no or... not really I, I don't okay she, she didn't explain um the reasoning behind it she didn't intend to but that's part of what i had said to her i think that you're right right that these things do occur and this is why i think that they happen and it really it boils all down to a lack of discipline on scientific principles that we have proven again and again work i mean all of this she talks too about the findings of experimental research uh a random controlled uh, uh, assessment, uh, experimental research or human subject research, and the fact that when you apply that level of scrutiny to these programs that are beloved and well supported, they find that they don't have statistical relevance. And I'm pointing out why. Right. Uh, that is because they're not they're not they're not scientifically designed to get a good scientific outcome. Therefore, they're not planful. So why would they come up with an output that you would uh, you recognize? We. And, and my, my, my point here as well is that we're trying to address these things in the model that we espouse and that we train on. That does, in fact, put a very, very high premium on targeting the right people and matching them to services is the, one of the major underpinnings of, of what we're doing. Nice. I, I especially liked her. Uh, it, this would never have occurred to me because I'm not an academic researcher on these things, but I do appreciate a good, well done scientific experiment. And she mentioned one one way that they, because again, as we've discussed in past in past episodes, uh, it's it's not really humane to play with people's lives and do what in my industry, in the web tech industry, we, there's something called A-B testing, where you divide up half of the people that come to your website and half of them, you show them one version of the website and half of them, you show the other, other version. And then you track how many more sales or whatever you're wanting to accomplish came from each version. Uh, and th so that's basically, you know, the scientific method of dividing people up into different into different uh randomly assigned groups and seeing if your methodology makes an effect. Uh, and we've discussed before that you don't want to be the person receiving the placebo in the, in the clinical drug trial. Uh, but one of the things that impressed me that, that she, that she mentioned was that uh, the way they, the way they can do this with, with policy is they can look at the people just before the policy changes and then compare those to the similar people that are just right after the policy changes. In this case, she was talking about like registering DNA in, in a, in a government database or something. And I, I very much appreciated that idea of how can we, because that's, that's going to happen anyway. If you're going to implement a policy, you're going to have a time where uh, some people don't get it and other people do get it. And if you, and if you don't spread that over years, but if you look at just the months before and the months after uh, that's a pretty clever way of, assessing whether or not this policy makes a difference. Yeah, well, and, you, and, the, and there's two different types of uh, research. And the first is control treatment groups, where in real time, you're testing out your theory that the ones that get do better, the ones that don't get do worse. The other is a match sample, where you take a look at the people you're working with, their characteristics, and you match them with a group of people that look similarly from years ago. That match sample approach is what I uh, often uh, almost always recommend uh, because the human experiment is so costly and you really should only use the human experiment when you are totally satisfied with your design. But if you, but if you're, if you're, uh, if you're comparing with years ago, like part of the thing that I, that I liked about, about the right when the policy goes into effect was that it's more or less in the same time period, but how can you compare, uh, you know, 2019 with, uh, I don't know, uh, 1999, you know. Well, and that's the reason that it's not as strong a research. The reason okay. that experimental research is often recommended is that it's the purest 
form of research because those variables aren't controlled for in real time. Got it. Got that, it. That nonetheless, the, the you know, if, if one is a gold metal level, and the other is a silver uh, uh, metal uh, level. Well, how high of a level do you need to be able to show that what you're doing is 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 working? Right. There's still and some I would value. Suggest, yeah, you, a lot of value. And in fact, when you put on the scale, the value of not. Uh, uh, excluding people and their families from services, which is very complicated in totally, the totally. prisoner reentry. But let's say that you you don't select a prisoner when he's still in prison to get certain pre-release services that tie to post-release services. That person doesn't get those services, but they get out and they go back to the very agencies that are providing those services post-release. Whether that is strong enough to show a statistical difference is unknown. But since it would be difficult to do, why do it? Yeah. I mean, why go to the trouble to exclude services only to have the people be able to work around a way to get at the services? I mean, it's just it's just complicated. And and, and she's raising that point uh, very generally. Um, it's a whole other uh, set of responses to, to what's happening that I could really dig into in discussions with her and others. Yeah, that would be interesting. Uh, I can totally see where time travel comparisons are much more just than, you know, taking some people and saying, well, you're, you're not going to get what we think is the best thing for you. Well, and, and you know, what's the what's the political and, and media context of one year versus another year when you're doing a match sample and you're looking back five years, let's say that during that time frame, there was a, a serial killer right. that made the front page of the headlines for three or four months. Well, everybody in the system that is charged with using their discretion to make judgment calls one way or the other, everybody's on notice and discretion tightens up and decision making becomes much more conservative, much more punitive. Sure. And as a result, you see entire patterns shift as a result of these major media events, which then can shift into political uh, rhetoric as well. Let's say that not only is there serial killing, but it happens during a gubernatorial election. And the people who are running for governor are all talking about how tough on crime they want to be and they want to bring back the death penalty or invoke the death penalty. There's all this stuff that can take place, which means that what happened five years ago is really different than what may be happening now where none of those uh, political or media uh, environmental conditions exist. So it's, it's, it's a very legitimate issue to look at the, the, you know, the comparative value of the research, but it has to be put on the scale at, at, to what expense. There is a cost to doing these uh, human experiments. For sure, for sure. And that was another thing that, that they touched on towards the end of their episode, I think, was how, because they're both economists, they they very much know that everything has a has a cost-benefit, you know, and every everything that we do has a cost-benefit analysis, and that you have to decide uh, reasonably whether or not helping a lot of people, if you're really going to sort of destroy a couple of people, if that's, uh, you know, you, you have to weigh those two things and decide what's ethical about uh, about doing experiments like this well and the, the the challenge with researchers too which he you know kind of uh, touches on is that it's difficult to show cause and effect when the causes of what might be happening are multifaceted of course so let's say in the re-entry uh, reform arena where I do much of my work we're changing intake uh, at the prison level we're changing the assessments that they get. We're changing how we do planning with the individuals. We're changing in-prison programming. We're changing the way we do supervision. We're changing the kind of people we hire, the way we train them. It's just a plethora of different policies, procedures, protocols, trainings. You've got the community involved in ways that they haven't been involved in. Well, all of that stuff taken together is going to have an impact. A research question is going to be, well, which of those things had the real impact? 
or which of those things interacted. As a person who works in the executive branch, one of my responses could be and, and has been, I don't really care. It's working. I got people failing less uh, frequently. I've got people committing fewer crimes post-release. I've got fewer people going back. I don't know of the 25 things we're doing, which one, they're all part of a grand scheme, a holistic view. And as long as it's working, I'm happy. Well, how do you create an evaluation which are generally geared toward a program evaluation where what we're doing is not a program as much as it is a system change, which involves a series of different types of programs. So it becomes a very more difficult research question for uh, folks like uh, Jennifer Doliak and others with some national chops to be able to dig into and perhaps look at some of the states that have uh, put forth a system change and uh, try to do a little bit more research there. She indicates a lot of papers and a lot of academic uh, information has been out there, but there's still a lot lacking on how you evaluate true system change. Sure, sure. And again, if you change 25 things and you see, you know, if you, and you see the, the needle move in one direction, you know, good luck figuring out what the heck to, you know, like, do you take one of those away and see if the needle moves again and over what period of time and... Real life is full of all of these uh, these different complex systems where you can really only tell correlation more than causation about any one thing. Well, and, and, and these are scenarios that you can measure. Instead of taking stuff away, particularly when you're looking at a statewide approach, in Louisiana, for example, we'll be working in 13 different parishes doing the work. Uh, 12 regions, two of the parishes are joined uh, at the hip. In each of those 12 regions, they're going to be doing some things that the other regions are not. They're going to be doing some things that are better, some things that are not as good. They're going to be missing some things that others are doing, and each one is, in, in, in fact, its own laboratory. Right, exactly. That's that, that's, a, that's the thing I touched on uh, in one of our earlier episodes was the fact that, especially in the United States, it's such a big country, and there's such diversity in the law and legislation and policy in every little region. It seems like, again, you know, with enough researcher hours— we could look at all of what's been implemented and how it's been implemented and figure out what works and what doesn't. But again, that's a question of just, you know, maybe this is a thing that, you know, computers and machine learning and stuff can help us with in the future. But at the moment, we're stuck with. Well, and with your your example, it's tougher when you're looking at uh, stuff that's very, very different and very, very diverse, maybe different states, different parts of the country. Another thing altogether to look within one state that has adopted a model, which means that there's some consistency of expectation mm -hmm. about what you're going to do via policy, procedure, protocols, what type of risk assessment you're using, what type of community assessments you're using, et cetera. If you've got a fairly standardized approach across the board, then you can look at the variations in implementation across jurisdictions and talk about how one jurisdiction is different, is getting different outcomes, could be better outcomes, could be worse outcomes could be better outcomes on a certain type of offender, let's say a sex offender, as opposed to a property offender. There's ways to cut the research into finer and finer points to try to determine how things are happening with a across the board and relatively grand experiment where you've got different opportunities to look at different ways that things are being implemented using the same type of general approaches. It's really a researcher's dream in a lot of respects, but research costs money. And when you're uh, struggling, as all states are, to not only get the money available to do the work we're talking about here, which requires better staff training, um, a lot of dedication of career development, probably at some point having to look at how much money people are getting paid to do the work so you attract better people. Right. One of the evidence-based practices that uh, research shows makes a big difference. You've got to be able to hire educated and trained people. They cost more money. Yep. And it's one thing to raise money to do that. But then 
once you raise this money, you say, well, at the end of the day, we're doing a better job with the way we're doing the work, but we still don't have enough services out there. So we don't have enough housing. I mean, oh my God, look at housing in uh, Orleans Parish in New Orleans and through this region of uh, Louisiana where there's very, very little housing for people who've not committed any uh, uh, felony crimes, mm -hmm. let alone those who have. The same thing is true with jobs. So we're now we're looking at millions and millions and millions of dollars. We're looking at grand statewide funding needs. Well, if you're struggling to find the money to do that stuff, how much more money do you need to find to be able to do good process and impact evaluations on top of it, particularly when universities that you're involved with are charging some ungodly administrative fees that are in the 50% level. So you're only getting about you know 50 cents or less on a dollar for the type of operational stuff that you want to buy, and the rest is going into the, the, you know, the support of the university in general. Tell me more about this housing situation. Like it would not have occurred to me as an outsider to that housing was a big problem in, I don't know this, uh, in criminal justice or what you know felony offenders have trouble with. Is that a, is that a, is there a big barrier to? It's a it's a it's a it's a pandemic problem across the country. I mean, really? the the first question to, to to understand the answer to understand is that. You know, what is the degree of housing availability in a jurisdiction for people at different income levels? Right, sure. And what you're going to find is that at the higher income levels, of course, there's plenty of housing, moderate income, moderate level, and then low income, very difficult. And when you are in urban centers that have a particularly difficult uh, uh, challenge in having enough housing that's affordable and sustainable for people in lower economic situations, that's the area where we're looking at that are likely to address uh, impact the needs of people that are justice involved because they are going to be on that lower end of the economic spectrum and then add to the economics of their situation the fact that they are a convicted felon and many housing uh, opportunities restrict housing against people who have had a felony conviction mm -hmm. there is some federal uh, laws that have been um, misunderstood and misused to help promote that idea, whereas in the federal laws, if you're convicted of selling drugs in a um, in public housing, you can't live in public housing anymore. Right. Uh, people say, well, if you've been convicted of any drugs anywhere, selling drugs anywhere, you can't live in public housing because we're a landlord who are in the public housing um, uh, scheme, mm -hmm. and we won't let you live here because you've been convicted of drug sales. Or expand that a bit more to convicted of any felon and pretty soon you've got a, a problem of almost impossible uh, uh, yeah, ramifications yeah. because it's how are you going to get more housing i mean it's it, it's not like you say oh well we just got to free some up well it isn't right. there right yeah yeah you know, it's, it's, so, it's just closed door after closed door and you know all the way down the hallway and you if if once you are convicted of a felony all of those opportunities are shut off to you, then, yeah, that's that's a big mess. Well, and, and, and then and then think about it too, for more holistic terms, that you're you're the person that's a potential leasee, and a landlord says, "Well, do you have a job?" And you say, "Well, no, I'm still looking." Well, then you get into the difficulty of people with convicted felonies on the record finding employment, you know. And let's say uh, we also know too that a high, very high degree of people that have gone to prison and are returning from prison have had a history of uh, substance abuse and or mental health. Right. And then on top of housing uh, challenges and employment challenges, you have treatment 
challenges and you've got a treatment regimen and schedule and medications that you have to stay on and that all gets complicated too and boy is it ever tough to get housing because you know you, do, what, you have to have a job first many times you're not going to get into a place until you have a job well how are you going to get a job if you don't have a place to live I mean, that, that's why the approach, and, and Jennifer Doliak points this out in, in her interview where she talks about a holistic approach. She doesn't define that, but in, in broad terms, I guess that she means the, the holistic approach of, of, you know, looking at housing employment and the whole, the whole shebang wrapped around uh, case management. But my God, where do you start? You've got to have a lot of money. You have money for a stipend to help with the first three months rent right so that they could get situated and if they've got kids live with their kids and kind of get them on square footing do you have some type of financial planning services here in uh, new orleans there's a, a united way southeast louisiana runs a, a place called the prosperity center which brings people in and helps train them and teach them on how to manage their income and set money aside and for every 50 cents that they set aside they match that mm -hmm. and at the end of several months then they have a savings account and it's helped hundreds of people get uh job uh, get a uh, automobiles so they can get back and forth to work and uh, afford housing and whatnot. It's You have to look at all of that stuff. It's very community-based. Yeah, and it seems like if you get out of prison and then you can't find housing, then you're homeless. And, you know, going back to prison starts to look a little bit a little bit more appealing to, you know, have a roof over your head well, and, all and three meals a day and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, it all depends how many times you've been in prison and how difficult that is for you and right. what kind of prison situation and, and, and how difficult your your homelessness life is because yeah uh yeah well and here's 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 the big thing we know so many months years before people get out when they're getting out we know their circumstances all we have to do is talk to them mm -hmm. well if we know somebody is facing homelessness or let's say that the victims of their crimes were their family so that they can't go back home right and we know that somebody has never had a stable job because they don't have any skills well, if we know that the entire time that they're in prison and we're spending $45 a day to keep them locked up in prison for all those years, probably, well, what are we doing probably, about that? It's probably cheaper to, to pay for them to have a, have a place to live on the outside. Well, it is cheaper, but you don't get to do both. Right. You know, it's either one or the other. No, 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 no I'm not, I'm not saying, all these other but, but uh, as opposed to have them come out and not have anywhere to go and end up committing another crime that puts them back in, in prison. I don't know. Give well, it gets it gets back it, the identification of the person that's higher risk and higher need earlier in the system, even at intake into prison, for example. If you know somebody's going to be doing, you know, three to five years in prison who's got a, a high risk level and a high need level, and they're a sex offender, for example, you better be working over the course of that entire three to five years imprisonment to make sure that they're ready for release. Right. Both from a from a, you know working on the person, you know, individually, but also from the community side who's going to support the person when they get out. The big difference between people make and people don't are the degree of their family connections and family support and extended family support through churches, synagogues, clubs, et cetera, you know, uh, pro-social activities versus anti-social activities. Well, if you've got to build all those capabilities for somebody that's never had them, somebody who gets their social uh, uh, rewards through gang activity, well, some, if you, you want somebody to change, then their environment's got to change, and that just doesn't happen. You've got to create that. You've got to have people on the outside who are uh, ready and being prepared for a person's release so that they can welcome them into their new life. Yeah. And that new life has to be both what they do during the day and what they do in the evening. It's got to be a very social, uh, highly uh, 
socialized uh, menu of activities that you do from beginning of the day to the end of the day so that you're you're not going to veer back toward criminal thinking and antisocial behavior and antisocial peers. And so it takes an awful lot of work from departments of correction to sure. be able to want to change. And there's one of the things that we can, we can talk about in future uh, episode perhaps is what is this theory of organizational change that departments of correction really need to go through. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a governor or a head of a corrections department that's interested in making a big change, well, that's great. And oftentimes that leadership can get them into the first couple of years of that, but it won't be sustained. That change won't be sustained unless you change the infrastructure of the organization, the policies, procedures, the organizational structures, et cetera. So we can talk about that because that's that would be a, a, perhaps some of some interest. Yeah. And another thing that uh, is on my to do list to talk about in the future that was mentioned in this episode that we're referencing is how well they do prisons in Scandinavia and how as soon as you get into prison there, it's like a it's like you're at a university for uh, for learning good social uh, behavior for when you get out and how productive that is. Of course, yeah. again, we get into scaling, you know, uh, one problem that, you know, a lot of a lot of liberals like to point at, at the Scandinavian countries and say, well, look how beautiful this works there. But a lot of those policies don't really scale up to such a uh, diverse, enormous nation as as the United States. Well, that's 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 exactly right. But but there there are a lot of policies that uh, and uh, again, another thing that I, I think uh, Russ, the host, mentioned in that episode was, well, can't we just copy Scandinavia and just do everything like they do there? And well, the answer is no, really. You can't you can't scale that up at that level because uh, some things work better at small at small quantities that you just can't can't do that. But well, right. Well, yeah. and and she, Jennifer Doliak points out in her talk that a lot of these changes have to happen at the state and the local level. So that's the first thing. Right, which you've been talking about for, for several episodes now. Right, you got to scale them at that point, but then within a state at the jurisdiction level. I mean, you're still talking about relatively small experiments when you've got in, in Jefferson Parish here, you've got 12 to 1500 prisoners returning every year, you know, over a hundred a month. And you're talking about new approaches to work with 40, 60 or a hundred of them. I mean, you're still working at a, a, a you know, a comparatively low level. These questions about taking up to scale apply even at the very local level. You can get a program that works how to get that program to work for a broader number of people throughout a, a, a jurisdiction like a parish or a county? And then how do you get that to work at a regional level? Then how do you get that to work across urban centers? Then how do you get that work at a state level? Then how do you take that up to scale at the state level? These are things that some states have experimented with, and we've got some good research. Michigan, for example, was one. And we can look at what they've done, but then how long do they last after that major top charismatic or political leadership changes? They don't last. Why don't they last? Because you don't significantly alter the organizational structure. So it's all, it gets back to that that point that I think we could spend some time on. Yeah. So you can't just tweak one one bit at the very tip and expect you need to restructure the organization so that it whatever the change you want at the leaves of the tree uh, flows naturally from from yes. the structure. You can't just um, yep. tweak little. You can't go around tweaking every single leaf. You need to get the Can whole you, tree yes. involved. Okay. And you've got to understand the resource allocation for permanent change is substantial. While the savings are substantial and you have to invest in order to save, it's not unlike that same situation where you say to an investor, I need your money now. Now, you won't make any money for the first three to five years because it's an investment. Right. So what you really have to do is you have to spend a lot more to be able to save some up the road. And then your recovery rate, your return on the investment. Right. Well, when all of that 
ROI, that return on investment, all of that is dependent on a state bureaucracy like a Department of Corrections that's not particularly well known to be good planners and strategic thinkers. Right. You're putting an awful lot of marbles in a, in a, in a basket that might be very difficult to, 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 to show over time. And so this is some extraordinarily difficult work, regardless of how much we know about how to do it right. And we know a lot. Right. But actually making it happen at the practical level over a trajectory of time that it that flows over time during uh, uh, new administrations at the governor, governor level, uh, mm -hmm. right? New new presidential administrations. How do you do this over time with some degree of consistency, particularly around consistent funding? Right. Well, we're spending billions of dollars on doing it in ways that aren't effective. We're not going to save that money right away, so we've got to spend even more than that until we get to the savings. And then there's no guarantee that we'll apply what we learned well enough on a statewide approach to save the big dollars. And so investors are naturally um, wary, questioning. Yeah, wary. that's right. Yeah, the the and and uh, a visualization visualization just popped into my head of uh, trying to build a sandcastle on a beach where. Every every so often the tide comes up and washes, right. it, washes it all that's away, it. and uh, that's exactly and, right. and then you have to go back and rebuild, and eventually you can maybe get something built, but uh, what a what a what a nightmare! Right. Yeah, all right, all right, I gotta go. All right, man, we will end it there. So uh, all right, ciao, baby. Next week on Seek Justice, we discuss how prison populations are a kind of free labor and how inmates are put to work. One guy expressed to me that this work he was doing was the most important thing he'd ever done in his life. And I said, well, that's a, that's a, big, uh, a big deal. I mean, why is that? He says, it's the first time I've ever done anything. Anyway. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've just heard, you can support us by telling a friend or sharing us on social media. All of our episodes can be found on our website, seekjustice.fm. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we can be reached at seekjusticefm at gmail.com or via our Twitter account, at seekjusticefm. See you next week. 